This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 11th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The Trump administration plans to allow states to impose work requirements on some recipients of Medicaid. It's something many states have requested for years. Ray Hederman of the Buckeye Institute, speaking with me at the Cato Institute's State Health Policy Summit last week, described what that might mean. Give me a sense of the lay of the land with respect to Medicaid and states' attempts to innovate within Medicaid uh, at the end of 2016. Sure. So, you know, states were able to make requests of the federal government through a waiver process called a Section 1115. And this is a demonstration waiver where states could make some changes to their Medicaid program with permission of the federal government. And so in the end of 2016, at the Obama administration, we had HHS that had a very firm view of how Medicaid should be structured and didn't want very uh, little innovation for states. And so under the Obama administration, states who wanted to innovate on their Medicaid program uh, could innovate by offering to cover more people, offer to cover more services. And so they were limited in the, in the impact of the way they could structure their Medicaid reforms. Uh, for example, Ohio had a Medicaid waiver where we wanted to use cost sharing. We wanted to create HSAs and some work requirements in an attempt to try to make Medicaid more like the private market. And unfortunately, you know, the Obama administration uh, rejected the Ohio Medicaid waiver. And really, at that point, there's nothing states could do uh, other than ask Mother May I to the federal government. So with respect to uh, the the structure and the uh, text of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act spells out the secretary shall, the secretary may, hundreds upon hundreds of times. So uh, with a new administration, it seems like it's potentially a lot could change in how uh, the feds and states interact. Right. But, you know, remember, the uh, states always have the ability to, even before the ACA, to request Medicaid waivers. You know, what the ACA did was they greatly expanded Medicaid uh, to healthy, able-bodied individuals. And so, as a result, you've seen an explosion in the Medicaid population, uh, and you've seen the Medicaid program really shift from covering the traditional population of age, blind, disabled, uh, very low income, to starting to cover more able-bodied potential workers. And so states have been grappling with this issue of what to do of how the ACA fundamentally shifted uh, the Medicaid program uh, from a a program aimed at, you know, disadvantaged to basically uh, aiming at more healthy people. And unfortunately, you know, that has uh, real negative consequences. And so uh, Medicaid expansion, you know, was predicted and unfortunately, I believe, uh, uh, was borne out by the fact that, you know, encourages people to work less, you know, because it's an income-limited program. And so people would basically sit there and say, uh, I don't want to work too much because I may lose my Medicaid benefits. The Congressional Budget Office uh, estimated uh, that the Medicaid expansion would uh, greatly reduce work effort in this country. And we've seen a lot of microeconomic studies uh, taking a look and say, yeah, it's not surprising that people are making the rational decision to limit their work effort if they're going to lose money. So uh, high, high uh, marginal tax for deciding to go to work. Exactly. You know, the Medicaid ends up being a cliff, right? So if you you can work up uh, to a certain amount, if you make too much money, then you completely lose your Medicaid benefit. So people are making the rational decision to uh, either work less or more likely probably work off the books and just not report their income a lot of times to the federal government. So what are we likely to see here in 2018? The individual mandate has uh, gone away. Does that have some specific interaction with how 
state structure Medicaid? Well, a little bit, you know, because it's interesting that, uh, uh, you know, people uh, to avoid the penalty, tax penalty, the individual mandate, you had to have some type of qualified insurance. And Medicaid counts as qualified insurance. And so, you know, the Congressional Budget Office uh, uh, basically said that if people weren't forced to sign up for Medicaid, you know, a free program, then uh, people wouldn't do it anymore. And so because the elimination of the individual mandate, you know, the Congressional Budget Office estimates that there'll be fewer people enrolled in the Medicaid program, uh, which shows a little bit about how little value some of these people attach to Medicaid uh, if they're only enrolling in a free program because they're forced to do so. And the reason is, you know, Medicaid is not great care. And so I think a lot of states are going to look at this opportunity to say, how can we make changes to our Medicaid program? And again, hopefully try to smooth uh, the program to help transition people from Medicaid into the private market. And I think the Trump administration is going to be much more welcoming to states that are trying to do that. And so you're seeing a lot of states now starting to create new 1115 waivers to give to the Trump administration, you know, which uh, include a lot of these reforms, such as work requirements, cost sharing, health savings accounts, uh, all in the attempt to have Medicaid more closely represent the individual market. So as people move off into private coverage, they're not surprised when they realize, well, you have to pay a bill. All right. So uh, I would I would suspect some of the people who are getting off of Medicaid uh, were only on Medicaid because of the the individual mandate, having to pay some some fee or fine or tax, depending right. on how uh, courts interpret it. Um, but at the same time, I, I got to think some people felt bad for having to make use of a program that is really for people who are in dire straits. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, we have research like what happens to people who leave the Medicaid program. And uh, uh, there's a state example in Tennessee that had kind of a Medicaid uh, expansion, and then they rolled it back. And so, you know, what happened to these people? And, you know, the good news is, uh, you know, the the idea that these people uh, were forced to go without insurance wasn't really borne out as much by the data. And so it turns out that a lot of these people uh, increased their work effort. Maybe they went to full time, uh, and then they were able to find insurance uh, through their places of employment. And so, you know, taking a look at that as an example, I think you'll see a lot of people, for example, that are now going to be able to uh, get private coverage uh, instead of Medicaid. And that's a win-win. And, you know, you're also getting rid of this huge disincentive uh, for people not to work. Because again, you know, if you make too much, you lose your Medicaid benefit. And so the idea is if we can get them into the private market where you want to be able to make more money, you know, that's a good thing, a good incentive. All right. So, what are we likely to see from states in the next year or so uh, with presumably a friendlier administration to innovation at the state level? Sure. Well, you know, the, um, basically in March of 2017, the Trump administration taking office told states and said, look, you know, forget about the past uh, uh, and rejected Medicaid waivers. We want to work with states to innovate uh, waivers uh, uh, for Medicaid, waivers to try to escape some of the Affordable Care Act provisions. And, you know, so we've seen a lot of states like Kentucky submit pretty aggressive waivers. Arizona's done the same thing. And uh, uh, we haven't seen as much action from the administration as we might think. Uh, but in late November, uh, the administrator, Seema Verma, the head of a Center for Medicare and Medicaid, CMS, uh, gave a big speech to Medicaid. And she's basically said, 
uh, this administration is going to allow work requirements to be included in the Medicaid program. And, you know, traditionally, uh, a, a lot of administrations said, you know what, you know, we don't want work for Medicaid, even though we know that work requirements have been a proven success in welfare reform. And so just this week, you know, the week of uh, first week of January in the new year, uh, the administration basically said, we're going to be releasing new regulations of what states can do to include work requirements. So I think a lot of states are going to be looking at this and say, look, how can we encourage uh, people to basically uh, uh, to have some skin in the game, figuring out a way to take care of themselves? And by work requirements, you're not saying, you know, you got to go out and work 40 hours a week. It could be stuff like charity activity. Uh, it could be a part-time job. It can be job training programs. And so states have a very, very broad definition of how they're going to define this. And again, the idea is we want to encourage people to uh, be able to work so that they can become uh, more prosperous and better themselves. This was kind of the idea that you know led to the bipartisan welfare reform back in 1996 that had a huge impact of bringing people into the workforce. Uh, people started getting uh, higher wages because they worked more. And I think that really helped break a lot of the cycle of poverty. There have been a lot of arguments between Michael Cannon uh, at the Cato Institute and many other people about the uh, advisedness of turning Medicaid into a program that made extensive use of health savings accounts. And what is your view on that? Well, you know, I think health savings accounts is uh, one of the great innovations in healthcare that we're seeing, right? That basically people are able to uh, save up money for health care that they need, and you're having people be able to make choices for themselves about how they want to spend their dollars. And so I think if you can put health savings accounts in the Medicaid program, and we see several states like Indiana, uh, Kentucky are trying to do that, uh, you'll be able to empower people to really go out and make decisions of the health because they'll be spending their money. They'll also also be able to build up some savings that they can then use perhaps to buy more expensive private coverage that has the services they might want to need and be able to utilize that for some of the healthcare innovations like direct primary care where maybe they could use some of that money to pay a doctor to get uh, uh, unlimited visits and really uh, uh, use that money to better see their health needs. And I think that'll be an innovation that a lot of states are looking at. So we spoke at the State Policy Network annual meeting last year about Medicaid. Right. And we're not getting at all these reforms you're talking about. They seem good, but none of them get at the original sin of Medicaid, which is that it's a federal, it's a program that's rooted in a federal match, which perverts state budgets. It causes states to become dependent on these federal funds, and it just changes the way states think about how they ought to spend taxpayers' money. And that's exactly right, Caleb. And so, you know, you sit there and say, and, and one of the reasons people say, well, why can't states, you know, cut more of Medicaid, you know, but because of the match, you know, state budgets sometimes will have to cut, you know, a dollar to lose $3 in services. So it's a real perverse incentive. And I think, you know, Congress is taking a look at this. You know, right last year, Graham Cassidy, which is basically block granting a huge amount of money to states to uh, basically to, to do with as they saw fit for the Medicaid program, I think you're seeing going to see a lot Lot more effort, I'm hopeful, than the federal government, like a per capita match that does away with that formula, that perverse incentive where, you know, states have an incentive to spend more or, you know, you see a, a games they'll play where they'll tax health care providers to use that money to spend on Medicaid to draw down even more money from the federal government. These are the type of reforms that can really gain change the overall program because, you know, the reforms we're talking about Medicaid are making Medicaid slightly better, improving it on the margin. These are some pretty big reforms. But 
But at the end of the day, you know, Medicaid is a huge entitlement program that is on a track to continually to blow up state budgets. Is that uh, something that you think Congress is actually serious about? Because I know the House has has uh, taken it very seriously, and that those things don't go very far in the Senate. Right. Well, you know, I think a lot of it, people will be looking at how close did uh, uh, the plan by Senators Cassidy and Graham get in being able to block grant uh, Medicaid. And, you know, it picked up a lot of votes. Uh, obviously, the House has been the leader on this issue for several years now. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, journeys uh, start with a single step. And, you know, uh, 10, 15 years ago, very few people were taking this idea seriously. And so it's growing in Congress. And my hope is, you know, as you continue to, as, you know, states continue to feel the pressure of the Medicaid program, we continue to see a, a, a study showing that Medicaid really isn't a great deal for how much money we're spending on the program. That'll put a lot more pressure on Congress because heavens knows that Congress itself has a pretty big federal deficit, and they're going to be looking at uh, hopefully trying to figure out ways to protect uh, federal, uh, uh, the federal deficit, the federal government, and protect taxpayers' wallets. Ray Hederman is vice president of policy at the Buckeye Institute. Late last year, we tried something a little different. We asked our listeners to financially support the Cato Institute and, by extension, the Cato Daily Podcast. A special thank you, therefore, is due to patron-level sponsor Emmanuel from New York City, who listened to this podcast while he ran the New York Marathon, a true glutton for punishment. Thank you, Emmanuel, for your patron-level support, and thank you for listening.